Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It was an unpaid internship, but when I left as a thank you, they gave me a TIG welder. Oh. And I mean, those are quite expensive, especially when they mm-hmm. gave me. So I took that back to the States and just sort of huddled away and went to the metal shop, bought a shitload of metal and started prototyping stuff with no goal in mind. I just wanted to build and just wanted to make stuff. And I had no idea I could make a career out of this. I had no idea what I was planning to do with any of my life and anything. I just wanted to make and create. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Maximilian Eike. Maximilian is an industrious young designer and entrepreneur who specializes in furniture design and production. He's the founder of Max ID NY, and since its launch in 2010, has produced new collections regularly for retail around the world. Born in Germany, his family moved to Long Island, New York when he was in the fourth grade. Now he splits his time between the Hamptons and Bali, where he produces his collections and nurtures his creative whims. Let's talk to Maximilian. My name is Maximilian Aiki. I am currently in Bali, although I have my company actually in the Hamptons, which is Maxa DNY. It's a minimalistic high-end furniture design brand that produces mainly um, solely actually for my own gallery and then for end user. I do it because I actually enjoy producing items that I like to live with and that in turn clients have actually fallen in love with and then has basically been able to turn it into a business for myself, which is a great way to find a passion that also makes money. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your family was like and what kind of kid you were? So I was born in Germany in Dusseldorf in 1989. My parents had the decision between um, having me born in Germany or London because they were at the time living between both places and due to sort of our whole family heritage being German and it's sort of being ingrained in my nature they decided for germany but i think about two weeks after i was born they already basically stuck us on a plane and moved us back to london for the first few years of our life and we still went back and forth we then finally decided to move to germany more permanently while my father was still controlling his galleries in london because my father's an art dealer and my mom was a fashion editor when i was born she sort of gave up that profession in order to basically be a housewife and take care of the kids. I have an older sister as well who's two years older than me. And she decided it was better to be a family that was together and focus on one profession, which was my father's, and then sort of have us all be under one roof instead of it being sort of torn apart by different outlying factors. So we jumped around quite a bit. I went to an international school in Dusseldorf till I was, I think, in third grade. And then my parents sort of decided to look for different places to live. And it was up in the air between America, England and Germany still. But my dad always would be obsessed with um, the Hamptons, which is on Long Island, New York. And it was a great summertime community that they would take us to since I was two years old. And he just fell in love with the place so much so that we went back every summer. Like It was the most relaxing place to go because it also reminded him of the north of Germany near Sylt and sort of where he grew up. So he wanted to give us that same experience in the summertime. And when we ended up getting older and 
realizing that Germany maybe wasn't the place for us on an international standpoint, he decided to look for a schooling system in that area, which he ended up finding, and then decided to move us over there as a family in fourth grade. We were always raised as a sort of communal family. Everything was, in theory, done for us kids and all the decisions. I mean, my mom basically quitting her job for us, my father moving to the States for a school for my sister, his business even, like he would schlep us along to all the antique stores, to every gallery. We would go on family vacations and he would literally only choose places that he knew he had friends or galleries or contacts. And then he would always say, we should go down that street because that has the best cafe which was a massive lie because it basically just had the best antique stores. And then he'd schlep us around from <laughs> gallery to gallery and sit us in the front room and literally sit with his friends in the back and spend hours in there while my mom and I and my sister were sort of desperate for the cafe that he promised us that we never got. So we'd ditch him for a while and then finally meet up later. And then he'd do the same thing over and over. So it kind of <laughs> became this sort of running joke over the years that we sort of never trusted my dad when he'd actually give us recommendations. And it still goes nowadays when he actually tells me anything. There's always an ulterior motive to what he is trying to get us or convince us to do. So growing up with an art dealer father and with a fashion editor mother and being schlepped around to galleries and, and antiques markets your whole childhood, did that make a big impression on you? Not to mention that, but you lived in many different places around the world how did that shape your youth? And then how did you see your creativity start to manifest? So it definitely had a massive impact on me. It, the weirdest impact I actually had, I remember as a little kid, the one thing I wanted to be more than anything was a truck driver for Headley Hampers, which is this art moving company that my dad used to always use. And I still use them nowadays occasionally as well. But it was just because we'd always, he'd do so much business with them that I'd always see them. And like the idea of being on the road and traveling around and not having any sort of roots was always this intriguing sort of concept. So it was a very... I weird way to be interested in the art industry. Of course, when I grew up, I realized that isn't necessarily the most comfortable lifestyle for me and what I want to do. The even worse thing was that actually this whole entire schlepping around, it's a very fortunate problem I had. But if you get overexposed to it, you kind of start getting a certain resentment towards it. Mm -hmm. You take things for granted. You don't appreciate things the way that other people would appreciate the same thing that you've been surrounded by. It's the same going into art galleries and museums. It's horrible to say, but I've seen a lot and I still have a lot more to see, discover and learn. But it definitely messed with my mind and my feelings toward the art market. So for a while, I was kind of lost as to if I actually want to do this. And specifically antiques, I never really want to do because it's a field that's already established and it's something you can't be new and creative in in the most unique sense. You can always do, of course, interesting exhibitions, do an interesting presentation, but you're not being innovative because you're presenting work that has already been created by someone with a massive talent and probably more talent than I'd ever have in in my life. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. And there's historical context that you can't really go in and manipulate too much. Yeah. No, it's definitely the stories you tell. They have to be accurate. The thing I love to do is, and I learned it from my dad, he is definitely a good salesman. The thing that I've always admired about him when he sells products is he as much sells the story of the piece of its history, but also sells basically the acquisition of how he came around the piece or about the piece or who he met through it or he went to this dinner and then met so-and-so and they introduced him to this gallery and then they showed him that it's these whole entire sort of strange segues that have actually nothing to do with the value of the piece or the history or anything but because it has a unique story in my father's mind people get entranced by that and I've always found the same with my products. I as much love creating products that have a story in what they look like, but also why I create them, how they were created, the materials I use, and just the weird circumstances of how it actually came about. So it's why I also love doing what I do in a gallery, because I get to actually tell that story to the end user. So all of this overexposure to art and antiques, you sort of hinted that it manifested in a certain desensitization or rebellion. Yeah. Did the, did that take hold in your teenage years? My teenage years were a little rocky or even before teenage years because the school we moved out to the Hamptons for when I was in fourth grade, it was actually for my sister to attend. It was the Ross School, but it was a private school that was founded by Courtney Ross, who was married to the founder of Time Warner. Okay. She created a private school for her daughter to attend. 
And then every year the daughter became older, she would then create the next school year and the next curriculum based off that. And it later grew into this very well-known school that has a curriculum that's basically based on the whole world's experience and sort of how the whole universe relates to itself. And it kind of, it makes more sense and sort of more detailed approach that in eighth grade, you'd learn about the Byzantine Empire and in math class, you'd learn about the math that came about, like the mathematicians that were in existence. In science, you'd learn about the sciences. In art, you'd learn about the artists and architecture. And in philosophy, you'd learn about religion and history of that specific time period. So in 10th grade, you learn about the Renaissance and do that same thing. So you kind of always, you only learned about sort of the specific interactions of how everything related in that sphere. So it kind of made you really aware of that math and science and art and history and everything actually is one bigger picture instead of learning that it's separate entities. So it sort of made you definitely be a universal student instead of just realizing, okay, if I'm good at math, then I can do this. You kind of learn to be better at everything moderately than being really good at one thing. And that was definitely me because I'm terrible at math. I'm terrible at like English and a lot of other things that I sort of realized, okay, I'd better be half as good at everyone else in this class at everything and just be sort of a well-rounded person then be really focused on one career path. So it kind of helped me as well in the future when it came to the path I decided to choose that made me more comfortable with who I am and traveling the world and running about. I was a good kid and I definitely wasn't rebellious for the one sake that when my sister ended up going to the private school, I ended up having to go to public school, which was not a negative thing until sixth and seventh grade where for being German, I was bullied and called Hitler a Nazi. I was thrown trash cans and I was mistreated to an extent of what a sixth grader doesn't really want to experience. I was even bullied by my math teacher, which was definitely not a fun experience. He would call me up to the front of the classroom and make me write something on board. And then he grabbed my hand and sort of pressed me down onto the floor in front of the whole classroom. So it definitely messed with my, oh my childhood a little. Yeah. yeah, that's incredibly traumatic. And I'm really sorry that happened to you. It's it really is. Awful. It is what it is. It's 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 I definitely I mean, it's 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 I I I don't remember as much as my parents claim that I suffered underneath it because I, of course, tried to cover it up in my mind. But mm -hmm. I mean, be going headfirst into a trash can definitely is a memorable experience that you don't <laughs> seem yeah. to forget too easily. Really traumatic. I mean, people have definitely experienced much worse than me. It definitely shaped quite a lot of my middle school and high school years because although my parents decided to finally, I could apply to the Ross school and they accepted me in eighth grade. If we wouldn't have gotten into that school, my parents actually were going to move me back to Germany because they didn't want me to experience this for longer. The thing was, the school was fantastic for me. Well, because of this whole entire universal learning, I was the only European there. There was a lot of Italians. There was a lot of English. We were all unique characters. But the problem was we still lived in the same house that I lived in when I went to public school. So I still lived in the same town with those kids. So I basically never went out. For my entire middle school and high school, I didn't really like to go into public. I basically just liked to hang out at home and therefore also was quite close with my parents. And even when it came to like high school parties, I never went to any of my proms. It definitely made me a unique character, for better or for worse. But it definitely shaped me to a certain degree. And that's why also when I say I'm rebellious to what my parents do, it's more in the aesthetic than anything else. I'm really I'm way too close to my parents because I also we run our company side by side. Well, I actually took over the company recently, but they were the ones that actually sort of helped me through it. And it shaped me who I am now. And I'm actually very happy for it because I it led into a lot of other things, which also led to why I left America for college and why I kind of am still running around and not necessarily calling America home as much as like the country is. It is the best country for what I'm doing, the most supportive in people. It's beyond incredible what it's done for me and for my career and the, like, the support circle and everyone is just amazing. And I've learned to, of course, what happens in middle school and kids is definitely one of those things that like it's it's we're all naive and young so kind of it doesn't really it, it doesn't affect me nowadays anymore but yeah, definitely man. kids are just part. mean oh like, so they're horrible <laughs> they're really horrible sometimes and it's nice to hear though that you were able to kind of turn 
the negativity that you experienced and, and kind of grow from there? Because that's not really the case for, for every kid that gets bullied. I'm so. still mad at the math teacher. I'm really fucking pissed at the math teacher. That's unacceptable. The, the, the math teacher, because I, I, I keep forgetting about and then I, like every so often I have this flashback and I keep asking myself if it actually happened. I do remember it happened because I went and sat down with the vice principal and he actually didn't do anything about it because he didn't believe it happened. It felt like the school was out to get me and just hate me. But I mean, the students, I can't blame it on them. I mean, I was the only German kid in that town and it's they're always going to find something. And in fourth grade, uh, in fifth and sixth, seventh grade, what do we really know other than the thing that is prevalent in the history books? And I mean, unfortunately, the Germans, like, we don't have the mm -hmm. best history when it comes to that. So it, of course, yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to kind of just be narrow minded and take the easy route out. Not that I'm defending any of it. It's, it's the way I've coped with it. I, I think Jamie was getting ready to commend you for your positive attitude and the way that you've been able to extract the positive from a really negative experience. And, and I agree with you, Jamie. I think it's really nice to hear you sound so mature about the whole thing. But that math teacher should have set an example for those kids. That's all I have to say. Okay, now we can move and on. And that's why I, that's why I still hate math to this day. I'm terrible at it. I'm subconsciously not blaming it on him. <laughs> okay. Where did you make your first piece of furniture? Was it in the Ross School or was that yeah. later on? So it was at the Ross School, sort of learning about different aspects of that time in history. Every year you'd have about five or six major projects that you'd relate to that time period. And they would give you freedom of choice to then choose to delve deeper into what you want to learn about that time period. So mm. I actually always would be obsessed about the art and the architecture side of those eras or movements. So when I, in eighth grade, I remember learning about Egypt and I built a 3D model of the pyramids. Then we learned about Constantinople and I built models of the architecture that was prelevant and then did essays on the like why it's built that way. It allowed me to go into what you want to learn and not what the teachers thought that was wise for you to learn, which was this great way to sort of stimulate the creativity. For some people, I don't think it worked in the school because it makes you have to go out on your own and work as hard as you want to work. But for mm. me, that stimulation and that freedom actually empowered me. And so in 11th grade, there's this project called the Modernity Project, which is a more intensive, it's a one-month project where they lead up to what you do in senior year, which is a four-month senior project. And it's kind of this trial by fire where they tell you, choose any history period, anything you want to do, and write a brief for what you want to learn, what your final presentation will be. And it needs to have value and merit to it, but you have carte blanche to go do what you want to learn and deliver something that will impress us. With that freedom, you don't really know what to do, but... In the time I was becoming obsessed with making small dollhouse furniture models, because I'm, I'm very good with working with my hands, and I then decided to use that to my advantage and delve deeper into the Bauhaus era of furniture due to the German heritage. Mm -hmm. And then the final project for that was to create uh, Bauhaus-inspired furniture as dollhouse furniture. So I, um, oh. I presented a collection of about three or four designs that, looking back on them, were absolutely horrifically bad looking <laughs> or at least in my opinion the models were well executed but the designs i would never produce and that led up to my senior project so i took that concept i created instead of three to four models i wanted to create about 12 and then one of those designs i would produce as an actual physical prototype mm. so that was the first piece i created that seems like real serious for high school yeah, it really was. And it was a lot of pressure. And I had this teacher called Mr. Chris, who I always admired. He was always on my side and just a nice, calm, collected person. And he also knew about my previous experience at the previous school because we lived in the same town. Just he had my back. So I had him as my project mentor. And there was this other art teacher that really I felt always had it out for me. And she would go out of her way to tell my mentor and everyone that the project I was doing was basically a waste of time. And I was just taking advantage of this system because all she saw me do was I don't sketch. I tend to keep a lot of stuff where I do under wraps until the final product is done. And then it just magically appears. And I still do that with my company nowadays. I hide from the world and then come back with 
things that then hopefully overwhelm people that they didn't expect. And in this case, the teacher said like she was really anti what I was doing. And it was mainly on the fact that everyone else in the class was working their asses off. And it looked like I was, literally did nothing because in, in school, you can't really do anything because the piece was being produced outside with metal fabricator that I knew up the street. So she never saw that part, all the models I was making at home. All, I didn't sketch and I didn't write because the final product was actually a physical piece. Whenever we were doing classes and we had the whole school day to focus, I literally just sat around. But when the time came to actually present the piece, the nice thing is it was really well received that they actually put it in the center of the exhibition in the most important spot. And everyone, it was sort of the favorite piece of the year. It, was, it completely showed her the perception of me was misplaced, which gave me even more power to prove it to other people in the future. Because if someone definitely thinks I'm messing about or I'm not being professional, I definitely like to prove them wrong, but I only can yeah. prove them wrong. <laughs> I really yes. admire your determination in the face of adversity, especially coming from teachers. It seems like you're bouncing back each time and really facing it head on and being like, no, I'm better than this. I can do it. Well, I think I, I might be to blame as well because I'd have a very relaxed persona. Pressure affects me. I mean, it stresses me out and I get a lot of gray hairs and have a lot of anxiety, but <laughs> it doesn't make me any more angry or my blood doesn't boil because of it just basically just makes me mm -hmm. more committed to what I'm doing. Good for you. So I'm, I'm actually interested to hear more about the path that you took from this high school and these furniture projects all the way forward to when you founded your own business. But there's a lot in between. There's, there's lot, um, yeah. you know, Griffith <laughs> College in Dublin. I know that's a long road and an apprenticeship in Germany. And I'm sure there's other things. So maybe you want to just paint that picture for us of how you got to where you yeah. are. I started looking around and I want to apply for college in Europe. I found this college in Dublin because my father, based off of his experiences, he lived in London for a while. And he said, if I had such a traumatic experience growing up in the middle school bullying experience, I should avoid London because at the time we had a lot of family friends who went to boarding school and all their sons and kids went through the same exact experience. I wasn't the only German kid that was being bullied. Every oh. single one of our family friends had sort of a similar experience either in London or in New York or upstate. Like it was just one of those universal things that when it came down to finding a university that was also English speaking, Ireland was the natural choice subconsciously. So I applied to this school called Griffith College, and I think within about a week and a half, I got the acceptance letter. And what we didn't realize was my mom and dad just thought I must have been the most talented student like in the world because I got accepted within a week. And they just were so proud of me. And they, of course, used that to tell their friends. And it turns out that it has nothing to do with skills. It's just if you're willing to pay for the school, they will accept you which is a very European <laughs> way to do it. And it, it wasn't even an expensive school. So, I mean, it's related to America. This was chump change. It's $6,500 for a whole year. I was very fortunate that my parents were willing to pay for my education in relation to my sister went to Arizona State, and that was considered one of the cheaper schools in America. And that was far more expensive than what I was getting myself into in Europe. So that was already a very good incentive on a financial level. And then what ended up happening, because I got accepted and I get kind of lazy sometimes, I forgot to apply to any other college. Consciously, <laughs> I didn't really want to because I was like, okay, problem solved. I got a college. If I have to go, I'll go. Because I wasn't really the most enthusiastic <laughs> about college because I still didn't really know what I want to study. I had signed up for interior design and I felt it was a good segue because I always admired architecture, but I don't have the attention span to do the five years plus then mm. working for an architect and then getting qualified. Plus, you, you don't like math, No, right? I hate so math. It's probably not. <laughs> Come sort of July, we realized, ah, oh, shit, we should probably actually fly to Dublin and see if I actually like this school because I, I, <laughs> I have to go. Or if I don't go, I basically take a gap year and I figure it out next year. Forgot, we actually never, we didn't go and visit because of the exact fact of I didn't want to ruin, I didn't want to know that I didn't want to go. So we actually just shut up for orientation <laughs> and just were like, okay, let's wing it. I loved it. It was absolutely incredible. It was a small private college and it was right in the middle of Dublin, like five minutes up the road from every bar and every single place you would ever want to be in Dublin. And we lived in these military barracks that were on the compound. And the first I met this Canadian guy who ended up being my roommate. And then we met this Russian guy who we made move into our room in about like a week. 
it was this really tight group of friends and had an incredible sort of comfortable time and felt so welcome that I had never felt that way anywhere. Back in America, I was alone. I had friends in high school, but we were kind of the nerds that would play video games. And when it was snowing, we'd go sledding while everyone else was sort of a house party. But definitely college was sort of my first delving into adulthood. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designers Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. 
There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Well, it's a relief that you found your people like pretty much day one and that when you got there, you loved it because like you said, it was the only one you got into because it was the only one you applied to. So that was great. But you mentioned that you planned to study interior design, but you didn't really know yet what you wanted to do. When you got there, did you just stay with interior design the whole time or did you change? So um, the thing was the school only really had interior design slash interior architecture. In my case, I actually did very much enjoy it because it was a very hands-on program in the drawing sense. The first two years, we were forced to only use drawing boards and draw everything by hand. We weren't allowed to use a computer. All the presentations had to be hand-drawn. And it was this very back-to-basics approach, which I really appreciate because I grew up hiding away. I would spend a lot of time teaching myself how to do things. And I taught myself Google SketchUp, I think, the first day it came out. And this was years before college. And so by the time I actually got into college, they were trying to teach us all these programs. And I had already been more advanced than what they could teach. It was one of those things that actually teaching me the basics, which I had never learned, was an incredible way for me to feel like I was not just wasting time. So I did two years there and I absolutely loved it. I somehow managed to to work my ass off and still have a social life. It was kind of because of the students in my class as well. I was one of, I think, 40 students of those. There was 30 Norwegians. I think I was one of four boys in the class. And those Norwegians were so hardworking and just intimidating that you kind of felt you had to keep up with them and then also beat them at their own game. So it lit a fire under me that I had to be better than everyone else. So um, so I left after two years. I basically left with a diploma instead of a bachelor degree. As much as the profession was for me, the structure just wasn't for me anymore because I realized every project I was doing, I was getting the best grade in the class. And this was getting boring for me because I didn't have competition anymore. And the way I proved that it was kind of also fixed was the final project for second year. There was a few aspects, and one of them was doing a technical drawing of a staircase, like exactly how structurally it works and everything. And I actually on purpose drew it wrong and missed one tread. So my staircase would never actually reach the final destination. And they completely analyzed every other person's drawing with sort of a tooth and comb. And if the line thickness wasn't right, they would lose a point. In mine, they looked at it for a second and moved it to the side and said, perfect. And it just was one of those things in that moment saw I'm not being graded anymore for the physical work I'm doing that moment. I'm just being graded for the fact that they are expecting what I do to be at the standard that I've delivered in the past. And therefore, I could literally quite literally put shit on the table and they would say well done it just wasn't appealing to me anymore because i if i can't learn any more than why sit and experience it so right yeah it makes sense too to like move into real world experience because why are you doing all of this schoolwork if you're going to get an a why not have like actual experience that you can put on your resume did you end up going right from the school to an, an apprenticeship yeah so it was germany it was with an architectural firm called Ensenauer in Düsseldorf, in my hometown and i did a two-month internship with them didn't have to go back to the summer in the hamptons which i really liked because i still of course didn't necessarily like it there and it was an incredible experience because they let me have carte blanche in just doing what I wanted in the office and they knew I started admiring and liking to do furniture design that they actually would let me design furniture for clients projects and they would actually present them to clients and one client chose to use one of my tables which was also incredible oh, cool someone willing to use one of my designs before I even knew anything about being a furniture designer was a very incredible pat on my back for myself. Yeah. I did one in Malibu with my godfather. He's an amazing interior designer architect. So I lived with him for three months and just helped him out as sort of an assistant and saw sort of how that side of the world works. And it was a completely interesting contrast to how an architectural interior design firm in Europe works compared to how one in a much more relaxed area of LA and Malibu does its business. But then right after college, I 
through a family of friends, got an introduction to this company, Poland's, which is a massive metal manufacturing company that produces mostly architectural features for major buildings. At the time, they were working with Apple. Um, they're doing stuff for Amaze, Louis Vuitton. They did the pools for Abramovich's yacht. All these massive, incredible pieces out of steel, stainless steel, that I did a, a metal apprenticeship with them for three and a half months. Mm. And an apprenticeship is usually years, but in this case, it was a crash course of seeing how the company works and they threw me straight into the factory and I loved it so much I absorbed it so much you couldn't get me away from there and I like you learned how to weld I learned how the factory production worked they would bring me on site to things I actually at the time because I was the best English speaking person in the factory out of about 150 people and I was 19 they actually flew me with two of their heads to Apple to Cupertino because they had a presentation so they needed my English knowledge which was also the like they brought an intern in, into this meeting, which also makes no sense, but it gave me that vote of confidence <laughs> that if they trust me enough for this, then I also must kind of be doing something right. So it was just this incredible welcoming experience. And there was one guy in particular that was in the factory that was sort of like the mad scientist and he, he took a liking to me. And so like I stuck around him for the two months at the end and just learned everything that he could teach, which was the actual stuff that I could apply to my career because it wasn't how to use the massive machines. It was actually how to make a table or how to make the smaller products. So it was an incredible thing. It was an unpaid internship. But when I left as a thank you, they gave me a TIG welder. Oh. And I mean, those are quite expensive, especially when they mm. gave me. So I took that back to the States and just sort of huddled away and went to the metal shop, bought a shitload of metal and started prototyping stuff with no goal in mind. I just wanted to build and just wanted to make stuff. And I had no idea I could make a career out of this. I had no idea what I was planning to do with any of my <laughs> life and anything. I just wanted to make and create. I left college actually not having an idea of what I was doing. I just knew it wasn't going to be sitting in college. I went to the metal apprenticeship not really knowing. I just sort of knew, let's give this a try. And then mm -hmm. even leaving the apprenticeship, I kind of knew this could be fun, but had no idea that you could be successful or do anything with it. Well, I, I have a couple of questions about you. So you founded your company pretty young. You were like 19, yeah, am I so right? I, I founded my company literally the day I came back. I founded my company in name. I just figured someday I will want to do something. And I came up with, at the time, I thought it was the most genius name ever, Max IDNY. If I could go back, I would change it. It was Max in Max International Design New York because I figured someday I want to be this huge international designer so I'm going to need international design in my company name. It was just a naive little kid thinking that this is totally going to turn into something. I like it. <laughs> so you started this company fairly young. I'm interested to know number one why and why you decided to do your own thing rather than go work for somebody else. And the other question I have is why New York? You've traveled the world already. And, you know, New York was the place where you had the maybe more negative experience in all the places you lived and worked. So I'm interested to know why you kind of landed back in New York, too. So it was kind of a circumstantial. I'm very fortunate. My parents built up an incredible family business that it's not huge, but it revolved around a gallery in the middle of Sag Harbor, which is now currently one of the hotspots in the Hamptons. We were this unique, creative sort of bohemian family that no one really understood, but we had great clients and a great network of friends. And although I didn't have friends my age, I had a lot of family friends through my parents. And I, would, I definitely always hung out with the older generations because it was more intriguing, also much more interesting conversations. And they respect what you do. And it, there's also the support circle there. So I always felt that from the Hamptons that I was in that side. And those generations were incredibly welcoming to me and to what I was potentially trying to do because of what my parents built up I knew sooner or later I it would be naive of me not to take over my parents business because it was always groomed as a family business the son takes it over but I didn't want to take over my father's business just as it was and sort of just slip into his shoes and then be the kid that is just the next generation I want to create a way that I could sooner or later absorb it into my company but have my name be up front and have it really be me. And then it happens to be also what my parents have done. At the time, it was sort of, let's try and do some furniture and see what can happen. But when it 
became more serious. The idea was, okay, create a furniture design brand uh, that lives and survives partially off of my parents' business, which is we use the same gallery, we use the same infrastructure. When I'm there, I help them run the business. When I'm traveling and doing um, manufacturing, they're basically in the gallery. So kind of would run seamlessly together. At the same time, the accounts were separate. The, if I had a client, I had to deliver the piece. If my parents, I mean, actually, if my parents had something, I had to do all the work as well. <laughs> as I got shafted with both jobs. Yeah, as a chippy. I mean, they, they've worked their ass off for me and to raise me that I, I, it's about time I um, go back and help them. <laughs> I didn't want to bite the hand that feeds me. I respected what they did. I loved what they did. The lifestyle of, that you have is very comfortable because you get to, I mean, you earn as hard as you work. So if you don't want to work, you don't have to work, but then you don't have any money and then you can't do things. It's this self-motivation, which again, works very much in my favor that I, I definitely at times do like to just chill out and sort of not have to do anything. And that works and it's your own decision too. But when you are successful and when you're selling things, it really, it drives you to want to sell more and it drives you to want to work harder. It was this perfect thing that I didn't have to answer to anyone. So September 2009, I launched my company. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had, I think in October 2009, finished about 10 prototypes of some interesting furniture I, I liked. My parents were at the time friends with the retail showroom designer for Ralph Lauren. He was in charge of what all the retail locations would look like. And he saw some of my prototypes and actually fell in love with a few of the designs and was like, cool, we should actually try and produce some of these. Like I have some manufacturers in New Jersey that we work with to do custom pieces for our stores. And I think you guys would really get along. So they introduced me and we did get along but holy crap, it was not what I was expecting because I was 19. I didn't have a lot of money and I have, like my parents were willing to be supportive, but there's an extent of how supportive your parents will be. And what this manufacturer wanted of me was it was it was just it was just beyond comprehensible because I brought them three prototypes. They want to produce their own prototypes that I had to pay for. They want to then also produce jigs that I had to pay for. I had to promise them 20 pieces of each design, plus all the drawings I already gave them, they wanted to redo and charge me for everything, an arm and a leg. It basically looked like it was going to cost about 100 grand to put three designs into production and 20 pieces of each. This was before I even knew what the hell I wanted and if people liked my furniture. So it just, and I was like, it, it, it and they were, they were nice, but they kind of just saw sort of, ah, oh, this kid comes through Ruffler in contact through Hamptons through that. I think they just saw money behind it and tried to take advantage of me that way. And I really did not appreciate that because also there was no money and there was also, there was no track record. I appreciate people who respect me because then I will respect them back. Even though I was a young kid, I, I had the, I had the, I, I was slightly was cocky and I definitely felt I deserved some more respect than I probably should get because I'm still young. But uh, we tried this with a few other manufacturers in America and this did not work out. It was the same thing. Like they wanted minimum orders, like thousands of pieces. It just really not welcoming to start out company. So I gave up on that idea and went backpacking to Australia for a few months. And I was flying back from Australia through Singapore. And my dad had given me a phone call when I was in Singapore and said he actually just ran to this family friend who knows me as a little kid from the Hamptons. And she lives in Bali now. He had mentioned that I like doing furniture and that I've been looking for manufacturers, but this whole difficulty in America and like it's been basically hard to find so she told him to have him call me and have him come visit me as soon as he can because she might be able to help me out so wisely and I, i'm not usually impulsive but i just thought i didn't know the person and living with her for two all these things that just kind of made me slightly like do i really have to but i just i just went for it and flew to bali and visited her like that following week and she in those two weeks introduced me to three different manufacturers it's a dream. They were beyond respectful. One's an Italian company, one's an English company, and the other one's also Italian. And they just were so receptive. They just handshake deals. They love my designs. And we're just like, oh, this is fun. Let's, let's try it. There's no big pressure. Like, we'll produce one of, we'll have a great time. One of my men, the English guy, actually was willing to just pay for what he did ahead of time. I love this design so much. Like, let's just make it. And when you can afford to pay us, like, 
pay us. And it just was this complete opposite approach to what I was used to in America, where you had to put everything on the table and then you might get something back. They were literally opening their doors for me. It was incredible. And I mean, to this day, they still, they're my two main manufacturers. And I see them about two or three times a week at the moment while I'm here in Bali. And it's just like, it felt like a world that I had always wanted to be in, but I never thought I could find. Yeah. And you found it all the way in Bali. Yeah. So you've been in business for about seven years now and you have a studio in the Hamptons and a storefront, right? And then you do a lot of your manufacturing there in Bali and you spend a lot of time there working with your manufacturers. I heard that you are also building an architectural compound. Can you talk about yeah. like what the what is that and can you tell us about it? <laughs> so basically about two or three years ago I came up with the really stupid idea that I want to invest in something here. And the concept started out as let's see how cheap you can make something for and find a piece of land and then maybe do like a little house sort of just try and experiment with it. And when I started presenting the idea to my parents, they liked the idea. My parents are also in real estate, so it was kind of always this thing. Real estate is a good asset, and it's something that also you can sort of stretch your legs on when it comes to design. It really started off as a sort of joke that I also told people about. And was like, it just was one of those things that you talk about that never is going to happen. And then I found this piece of land. It's a little bit outside of the tourist area by about 15, 20 minutes. It's a nice piece of land on a river surrounded by rice fields and near one of the biggest temples in Bali. It's just, it's, it's pretty. So I pitched this to my parents and it was sort of like, oh, like this actually might be something serious. Unfortunately, that piece of land was the price of what I had pitched like as an entire budget, like including construction, which is still relatively speaking to the Western world, it was still beyond affordable. Then at the time looked at this more seriously and we're like, is this worth doing? We decided to sell a place we had in Germany that we never used that was just a rental income and decided to trade it for this that in theory can have much more value for us and our future. And both my parents are planning on retiring here. That's kind of one of those things that it can have a very interesting value to them in their future as well. And for me, it's an incredible way to show what I'm capable of because no one believes what you're capable of until you actually prove it to them. In the weirdest way possible, I actually don't necessarily want to become an architect or interior designer. But I definitely always wanted to see if I could rise that challenge. You just want to be the best and prove everybody wrong. I do. And it's a very egocentric approach. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm living my life. I'm the only one that knows what's going on in my mind. It's sort of one of those things that I have to keep myself happy and satisfied and yeah. entertained. It's selfish, but it is what it is. It sounds fun. Yeah, it's entertaining. I keep some very entertaining conversations to myself as well. I definitely talk to myself way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to be your own best friend if you don't love yourself. Mm. <laughs> uh, right yeah. on. Right on. It turned into a compound with six different houses, about 9,000 wow. square feet of houses built, acre and three quarters of land. And the concept is it's all my own architecture. I'm doing 60 new pieces of furniture for it that are solely designed for the house. 60? 30 pieces of lighting designs that are custom <gasps> built. I'm doing a tableware set all ceramics, all my own design. So I have about 35 pieces of that. I'm doing the custom cutlery. I'm doing the toilet paper roll holder. I'm doing the trash can. I'm literally designing every single aspect of the house from scratch. I I love this so much. People are going to love or hate it because my style is very extreme to a certain taste. Yeah, but it's so cool that you've like created this opportunity for yourself to like design all of these things. Yeah, no, I've been very far. I have the manufacturers here and I'm building it for the cost that I would manufacture it for. So having all mm. these capabilities and then the connections, I just started working with a ceramics company who I'm also collaborating on for the house. And I'm just super excited about it because they're an amazing company that works with incredible other clients as well. I'm going to fly to Thailand next month to look for a cutlery manufacturer that I got an introduction to. I would have never thought I would be doing cutlery. I'd never thought I'd be doing ceramics. Lighting, I always love to do, but it has quite a financial burden. If I'm building it for a house, I can offset the costs for the prototyping mm-hmm. and all that through the house. It's basically, it's a big R&D project. And the idea is everything I'm launching in the house also in the next two years, I will then bring to the market in America. So I'm going to launch the ceramic collection. I'm going to launch the lighting collection. I'm going to launch all the furniture. It will basically make me have a quite extensive catalog. I'm designing five individual beds for the house I've yeah. never done before. 
Jeez, that's a lot. I mean, we haven't really talked at all about your creative process. We talked about how you studied interior design and how you had all of these internships and how you made some furniture and did some some welding and some metal work. But we really haven't talked about where your ideas come from. And I'm really interested to hear how your brain works and where you get inspiration. How do you take, you know, a seed of an idea and make it into something? That's viable. So my ideas come from the dumbest possible roots sometimes, but it works for me. In college, I was actually, again, told off by a professor that I can't draw and I physically can't sketch. I can draw like architectural drawings, but my hand drawing skills are absolutely appalling. And one of my professors, again, told me that this was not a way I could base a career on. Like, I would be basically terrible at this and I should give up. So based off that, I kind of, again, use that to my... Yeah, I'm like, if you want to make Max do something, that's the way to do it. Tell me off. <laughs> In my case, I'm actually very fortunate that I have a very good 3D visualization that I can build something in my mind without ever having to draw it. I can take it apart. I can basically, I can use the whole entire manufacturing process and just imagine it. And so this worked very well with also when I was creating prototypes that I would come up with my mind. I would then just buy the materials, bring it to the table saw and just cut it, screw it together. And then I have the piece and you'd never seen a drawing or rendering in the process. This is kind of how I create stuff in general as well as I, I come up with a very basic inspiration, which in my first collection, I designed these multifunctional designs that, that stacked on top of each other and into each other. And out of a pure necessity because of the way I worked and because I didn't draw, all my designs ended up being quite geometric because I basically would have to go to a lumber yard. I would buy the material that you could get. This was all basically straight wood or plywood. I would then only have tools that I could basically cut this material with in right angles or straight or sort of angles based off that. So it turned out that my furniture was basically square <laughs> and right angles and there was hardly a circle in it. And without even knowing it subconsciously influenced my design language as a whole. And now mm. I can't design anything but stuff like that because it's become ingrained in me. And there's, I mean, there's some, like, some of them are, one of my tables is called the tea table, because quite literally it looks like the letter T. I was sitting once in an Indian takeout shop, and I was trying to come up with new inspiration, so I looked at the back of my ATM receipt, and I was going through the alphabet, just spinning the receipt round and round and round, until I realized, okay, you can make the letter D into a table, if you basically use that as the base and this, and it just was these, like, really weird useless stupid ideas that then actually turn into something quite interesting i love trying to create stuff that people also wonder how is it assembled or how is it put together and it's simple materials or just like simple color choices i never set out trying to design the way i did okay i, I like the steel and i love donald judd and i like that aesthetic but i have a unique unique way my mind works which is also why i've decided to produce stuff and then sell it instead of designing and then trying to find a buyer for it. So I actually also mm -hmm. have a warehouse in the Hamptons with about 800 pieces of furniture in stock, which is the whole way my business was set up that I travel about three months a year to Bali. I come in September to give in my designs. I come in December to look at the prototypes and then in May to do the quality control. The collection would launch in June or July of that summer. I would spend about five months that summer selling the furniture because I'd buy a container with several hundred pieces of furniture in it. And the great thing was people in the market I'm trying to reach and the price point, people aren't used to immediate gratification. In my case, I have of my most expensive table, I had three in stock. Of my side tables, I have 10 in every different color in stock. So if you wanted to come in, you could buy that side table and I deliver it to you later that day or tomorrow. And it was sort of a way for me to get immediate feedback as well, immediate money. And then I take that money and use it for the next year's collection. And it's also over the years built up quite a collection I have still in stock, which is great because if I get emails, even while I'm doing this house at the moment, I can deliver products to people, even though I'm not necessarily physically there. Like, how did you learn how to run a business? Is it through your parents or did you take any classes on it? Or is it kind of one of those things that you learn on the fly? From my parent, from my dad, I learned a lot of positive things. And I also learned what not to do because he's, he's an amazing, amazing businessman. But there was some things that I was like, yeah, you could do that differently. But no, it's trial by fire. From the day I can remember, I was schlepped around to every single thing my parents did. And that means meetings, parties, everything. It kind of rubs off. I'm not the most academically intelligent person. And 
fortunately for business, you kind of don't need to be because it's social interactions. Yeah, it's relationships and stuff. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're not an idiot with numbers, you can figure the rest out. And then I do have mentors. My manufacturer here, the guy who produced my first collection from his factory on his own dime, he's my main person I go to with any questions because he's, he's built up an amazing company for himself. I really respect what he does more than anything. I look to him for input. These handful of people that have been around me that have always sort of then show me, okay, do it this way, do it this way, and then you can interpret it on your own. It's learning and then failing and then trying it again. Basically, it's all a gamble. It is. And finding the right mentor or mentors is is always really great. Do you have any advice? Because you kind of threw yourself into your own business at a very young age and I'm interested to know if you would go back and change anything or if you learned anything that could be useful for maybe some of our listeners who are looking to get into their own business in design. I'm not sure if my advice is worth it for anyone, but I don't necessarily believe education is the most important thing, as in sitting in the classroom for five years and learning how to do things. I definitely think getting out and doing it is sort of vital. That said, I was fortunate enough to have a security blanket to fall back on. If I was to fail, I would always, in theory, be able to take over my parents' business. But as first world problem as that sounds, the fear of just basically becoming an art dealer or antique dealer was kind of that thing that made me fight for, I want to be known for being a furniture designer or just designer in general. I still don't know where my next um, paycheck's coming from or if I'm going to sell furniture this week. It's, it's always a gamble. But there are surprises around the corner. I've told someone once, the stuff in life you plan never work out the way they do, but in turn, something better or something worse comes out of it, but it's a lesson. It's something that will bring you to the next step. This project that I'm doing in Bali took on immense proportions I was never expecting, and it's incredible. There's things that I really had my heart set on in the past that never worked out, and I'm glad they didn't because where I am right now is the perfect position I could be in. The same with bullying. If I didn't get bullied, I would have never been sort of keen to leave America. If I didn't leave America, I would never have been in Dublin. And every single little step is vital to make the next one. It can always get better. Don't harp on mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're if you're making mistakes, as long as you're learning from them, I mean, yeah. who cares if you make them? That's all yeah. about life. That's just life. Like we all make mistakes um, in business, especially when we're self-employed. And, yeah, you know. it's the repeat mistakes you have to really look at. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, here I am again. How <laughs> do I do this to myself again? <laughs> so you had talked earlier about what a good salesperson your dad is because he has all these great stories to tell around the antiques that he sells. I mean, obviously, some of those are the actual historical context. But you said that he also tells these really unrelated stories about how he came to acquire the object and all of these personal stories that add value and I'm wondering how that's impacted you and how stories end up getting attached to your objects. I always feel more connected to an object when I know its origin story yeah. and I know a little bit more about it. Or even if it's an antique, if I know a story yeah. that it's been through or that's attached to it. In my case, I guess Pashua always has been as well as sort of when I tell my personal story, they find that interesting because it then reflects on the work that I've created and what I have to come in the future. I think people buy as much into me as they do into my furniture. And it sort of then also mm -hmm. challenges mm -hmm. me to make sure that I don't let these people down, that what they are investing in also has a future mm -hmm. and has something to be proud of for them. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, if you go to friends' houses and they show you their new piece of artwork or tableware or whatever they just bought, the whole thing is they want to be able to tell the story that mm -hmm. you gave them. So in my case, they talk as much about the physical piece, but also about me who created it and how I came into existence. I don't know. I mean, my father, like his stories, his whole lifestyle and character was he was this English playboy who lived in a beautiful house in London and was a charming man and just had always silver tongue. And it definitely made him an interesting person to listen to <laughs> as well. Mm. I try and design pieces as well that I don't, let's say, exist. I still hope those designs are aesthetically pleasing enough for people to just want to buy it because it is attractive mm -hmm. yeah like you want a piece to stand on its own but also yeah. you like that they are investing in the designer you and and hearing your story and making a connection between you and the object as well so it's kind of like both you want both things yeah so 
the future of your business obviously is is an architectural compound in Bali and many more collections of furniture, lighting and accessories. Is there anything else that you see, you know, your business evolving into? My dream would be to try and open a gallery, keep the Hamptons, maybe one in L.A., and do one in Europe because we also have a big warehouse showroom over there that maybe expanded that and just try and do it on my own. But also that's a lot to take on. Doing it on my own also means it's my own money and my own financial investment. And it's like it's it adds up mm-hmm. that I kind of would like to <laughs> try and minimize that burden. The main plan right now is come the summertime when I launch these new collections, I'm hopefully going to start up online marketplace because I've never sold online and create a year round physical presence instead of a seasonal business and start really marketing and pushing the brand because I've been working my ass off for the past years, but it needs to start carrying my future as well. Right now, it's a very fun thing to do, but I want to make it something that can last for my whole entire life and hopefully last beyond me as well. Yeah, I don't have to be where other people are at the moment because there's always higher and further you can go. So you've been working your ass off, but what about Maximilian personally? Is there a great adventure on your list of things that you want to do in your life? I backpack a lot. I would travel around the world for three to six months at a time, stayed in hostels, and I've been very fortunate to see a lot of countries and continents. If the impulse hits, I've been very fortunate to satisfy it because I also use it as a sort of finding myself, finding new inspiration, finding manufacturers. If you're open to finding opportunities everywhere, then even just a vacation or a trip can be actually quite beneficial to my future or my business. Right now for myself, I kind of actually really am loving where I am. I'm doing what I am. I am my comfort. I live, breathe, eat this <laughs> shit. And I fall asleep dreaming of furniture. I wake up dreaming of furniture. And this is me. Like I'm not suffering underneath it. It's stressful, but I, I couldn't imagine doing anything differently. So I don't think I hold the personal separate from my business. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, where can our listeners find you on the web and social media? So I have a website called www.maxidny.com. And I'm, I st- do people still say www in front of websites? I'm not no, sure. No, I don't think they do. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny because we have talked to so many people and like you must be like the 10th person to say like does anybody even do that anymore but it's so funny because it's such a habit (laughs) because it's you don't think it it can work without it but it does mean the internet is still so confusing yeah yeah and i have instagram max idny m-a-x-i-d-n-y well thank you for for chatting with us all the way from bali it was actually a week-long challenge to find the one place that would have reliable fast internet and no noise because the place i'm actually staying has motorbikes and roosters outside of it at the moment and then a cement mixer so i drove about 30 minutes out of the way from any tourist trap with the one place that has fiber optic cable (laughs) because finding internet here is it's surprisingly a challenge as much of a um, 21st century we live in today. Yeah, Bali, Bali keeps things interesting. Well, thank you for <laughs> driving 30 minutes to find fiber optic cable to talk to us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, w- I would drive further. If I, had to. I was even considering if I had to fly back to America for I would have. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. And save one of those houses on your compound for us because we might be retiring there. <laughs> Please, if you ever want to come visit, that's the idea behind it as well. It's to live in showroom for clients and friends. And sort of the idea is that they get immersed in what I am and what my brand is. And then they, they understand me more. Wonderful. That sounds really awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye bye. What an industrious young lad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He's accomplished so much at such a young age. It's pretty astounding, really. I mean, I don't know how many other 20-year-olds are building their own architectural compound, but if you are, give us a shout. Yeah. (laughs) We'd like to talk to you. I do sense a common theme, though, in a lot of people that we talk to is don't underestimate me or I will go out of my way to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. And in many ways... It seems to be that being underestimated or being discounted in some ways actually been a really good thing for people. I don't know that I'd actually advocate that as like a form of parenting or mentorship, (laughs) (laughs) but but it does seem to really fuel people's desire and fire. 
Yeah, I appreciated how open and honest he was about bullying or being bullied as a child. And also that he was able to kind of come back from that with more determination and a better sense of like who he was and what he wanted, even though going through that must have been really difficult, especially in the formative years. I mean, oh, I can't even imagine how traumatic that was. And and it wasn't even I don't know. I mean, just they were bullying him because he was German and he must have already felt like an outsider. But then to be Mm -hmm. sort of attacked just for your heritage. I, I mean, obviously, no form of bullying is okay, but I am still fuming about that math teacher because we're relying on the adults in the school system to help set an example and show people how to behave towards each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that Max's parental support has been really impactful for him. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like his parents are both fascinating and also very loving and very supportive and you know, did what they needed to do. They got him out of that school and got him into a better situation. Yeah, I think it's great that he was very honest about his situation, that, you know, he had parents that were very supportive, but also, you know, if he started his own business and it didn't work out, that he kind of still had the family business to fall back on and that he did have a fail safe. But I loved that he really wanted to make a name for himself and that that was really important for him. And also that he he said, like, you know, he's not perfect. You know, he makes mistakes all the time. And I think that's really important to, to hear, especially from someone who's incredibly successful and, you know, comes from success. It's it's nice to hear that they they can check their ego. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it sounds too like while he may be smart with the business, he is still trying to find a way to make it sustainable both so it's not all him he doesn't have to work himself into the ground and and two so that he can kind of maybe know where his next paycheck is coming from but -hmm. i appreciate that while he's young and scrappy he's just giving it all he's got (laughs) just everything he's got (laughs) i know he drove 30 minutes to find fiber optic cable (laughs) thanks maximilian you went above and beyond Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Maximilian's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Clever Podcast. It's always great to continue the conversation with you guys after you've had a chance to to the show. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.